In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Pray with me, please. Our Father in heaven, please teach us today that we have Jesus and we do not need anything or anyone else. It is in his name that we offer this prayer. Amen. Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, This verse anticipates that there will be a king, and that king is Jesus. Uh, The leaders in the book of Judges were not kings. They were judges. And their influence was limited um, such that law itself was not determined by the word of God, but it was subjective. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, In fact, the eyes of God did not influence people very much at all. They didn't care what he saw or what he thought. As long as it made sense to themselves, that's, that's what they did. That's how they determined truth. So as we study the book of Judges, as we have been for a couple of months now, you need to remember that the book is repetitive. There is a cycle of sin and suffering and supplication or prayer, followed by God hearing that prayer and bringing salvation and a period of solace and then back to sin, and it repeats over and over. And today we're going to see in Judges chapters 10, 11, and 12, that's our text today, we're going to see that cycle of the Judges play very prominently in our storyline. Note also that the book of Judges is rough. There's a lot of sex and there's a lot of violence in the book of Judges. Our hero today, a man by the name of Jephthah, was born of a prostitute, and he was responsible for oceans of innocent blood. The book of Judges is rhetorical. Uh, Whoever the author was, and I think it may have been Samuel, but whoever it was paid close attention in his Hebrew literature class in college because he really knows how to write a story. Well, today we are going to see a very intentional use of rhetorical literature, a device which is going to be used to compare God and Jephthah. And then finally, and most importantly, the book of Judges is redemptive. It's the story of God, a good God, being very good to bad, very bad people, really bad, undeserving people. Their deliverance is rooted and it is grounded in his heart of mercy for those whom he loves. Now, today, more than ever, I'm going to need you to see and to feel and to embrace the love and the heart of God. Our goal today is an ambitious one. We're going to be looking at three chapters, 10, 11, and 12. Please turn to Judges chapter 10. Let me give you the big picture context. There was a man by the name of Abimelech. He was the son of one of the judges, the son of Gideon. He was a really bad guy, and thankfully, his reign comes to a close at the end of Judges chapter 9. He wasn't really a judge. He was a self-proclaimed king. He wasn't really a king. But now he's gone, ding-dong, the witch is dead, 
Abimelech is out of the way, and as we move into chapters 10, 11, and 12, we have a bracket on the front end and a bracket on the back end. And these brackets come in the form of what we like to call minor judges. So when you look at the beginning of chapter 10, you will notice two of those minor judges, Tola and Jair. Uh, I say that they are minor in that we do not have very much information about them. And then comes the the heart of our lesson today, and that is the story of Jephthah. Uh, He is our concentration today. And then once the story of Jephthah is over, we have three more minor judges. They make up the back end of the bracket, and they are Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Uh, They close out this section of 10, 11, and 12. Uh, We are not going to be talking today about the five minor judges in this section who collectively Uh, drink up only 13 verses of ink in Holy Scripture, except to say that they were judges and that they did serve their generation. Uh, We're going to concentrate on Jephthah. If you're doing a study of U.S. presidents, you're going to spend more time on Abraham Lincoln than you are on Millard Fillmore. No offense to these five judges, we're just not going to be talking about them today. Jephthah is our focus. Sixty verses of Scripture are dedicated to his life. As we examine his life and his service to Israel and the Lord, let us remember the bottom line, and that is that this man Jephthah was a saved man. He is our brother in Christ. And the reason that I say this, and the only reason that I say this, is because his name appears in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. You know that there are close to 3,000 people mentioned in the Old Testament, and only 17 of them make the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11. Jephthah is one of them. And in Hebrews eleven thirty nine, it says of these 17 people mentioned in that chapter that they were commended through their faith. Jephthah is one of them. Now, arguably, he would rank number 17, but nonetheless, he is in that chapter. And I point this out up front because you might, as you were listening to this story, be tempted to question this guy's salvation. He was not perfect, as we shall soon learn, but he was a child of God according to the Word of God. As we look at his life, I want us to consider the following outline. First of all, his verification Number two, his voice. Number three, his victory. Number four, his vow. And number five, his vindictiveness. And I would like to congratulate myself this morning for I have for the first time ever in almost 40 years of ministry done alliteration using the letter V. Point number one, his verification. In other words, how did he get to be a leader? In order to get there, uh, as the author intended us for us to get there, we need to examine once again the cycle of the judges, but we need to look at it more closely, and we need to see how the cycle of the judges is written in chapter 10. There's going to be a slight variation. Every week I tell you that the book of Judges is repetitive and that it is rhetorical. Well, we're going to see both... Uh, the repetition and the rhetoric in the verification of Jephthah as Israel's leader. 
If you look in chapter 10, uh, you're going to notice that there is the standard cycle of the judges of sins followed by suffering and then supplication, so on and so forth. But there's going to be one major change, one major change. And by the way, historically, the suffering here is going to come from the Ammonites, the Ammonites who were in the Transjordan, which means that they were on the eastern side of the Jordan River. They were descendants of, of Lot. That's going to be the instrument that God is going to use to, to discipline his people. It is the Ammonites. But as we look at this cycle of the judges, the people cry for help. But listen as I read verses 10 through 14 and see if you can detect a variation in the formula or the cycle of the judges, beginning in chapter 10, verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, that is the supplication, saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. The Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Manoites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Did you see the change? The change is they cry out to God and God says, no. But Israel continues to seek God's help. They don't take no for an answer. Watch what happens in verses 15 and 16. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them. In other words, they repented and serve the Lord. Here we go. This is the heart of today's sermon. Catch this, and you will catch everything else, and you will have a wonderful life. And he, the Lord, became impatient over the misery of Israel. That might be one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. Israel continues to seek help and... God looks at them and he becomes impatient with their misery. Uh, please notice what moved the hand of God. It was not the genuineness of Israel's repentance and nor was it their persistence to pursue and to ask for help. That which moved the hand of God to help his people was his mercy. In other words, he literally got tired or weary of looking at their misery. Why? Because he loved them. You're getting ready to spank one of your children, and you give them the standard line, this is going to hurt me a lot worse than it's going to hurt you. I think that's one of those cliches that is actually true if you are a good parent. Must the child be disciplined? Absolutely. For if you do not discipline your child, you hate your child. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction drives it far from him. However, when you see that the child is hurting, 
for whatever reason, even if it is deserved hurting, there is something in your heart which moves you. Listen to how Dale Ralph Davis puts it. Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance. Let me read that again. Pay attention to that. Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. It is difficult for us to imagine how much Israel's misery moves the Lord. It is as if he cannot stand to see his people, even his sinful people, crushed. In all their affliction, he is afflicted. Stop right there. I'll get back to the quote. Where does that come from? In all of, in all of their affliction, he is afflicted. It comes from Isaiah chapter 63, verse 9, where the Lord says, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. Back to the quote. He is the God whose holiness demands he judge his people, yet whose heart moves him to spare his people. End quote, praise the Lord, hallelujah, amazing grace, what a savior. Did you see that? More importantly, did you feel that? Now at this point, you should be looking at your God and saying amen, hallelujah, and rejoicing in your heart right now that your restoration is not dependent upon your repentance or the quality of your repentance, but it is based upon the mercy of God. You should also be asking yourself at this point, what in the world does this have to do with the verification of Jephthah? And the answer is, there is a rhetorical or literary comparison between how Israel treated God and how God responded to Israel. That is to be contrasted or compared with how Jephthah's family treated him and how he responded to them. And that comes in chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Listen to those verses. Now Jephthah the Gileadite, and Gilead is from the tribe of Manasseh. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he had a problem. He was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons, legitimate sons. Uh, Jephthah was not one of those legitimate sons. He was an illegitimate child. And when his wife's sons, that is his half-brothers, grew up, they drove Jephthah out, probably fearing their inheritance, and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah, and he went out with them. So he goes to a place, and he gets in with bad company, but he's a pretty good warrior. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, "'Come and be our leader.'" 
and we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out from my father's house? You drove me away from my family. Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? How do you like me now, Toby Keith? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, "Uh, that's why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and, and be the head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah, which is in the Transjordan, which is on the other side of the the eastern side of the Jordan River. Do you see the parallels? They are very clear. Israel rejects God. Jephthah is rejected by his brothers. Israel falls into distress, as do the Gileadites. They both cry out for help, and both the Lord and Jephthah initially say, no, I'm not going to help you. In both cases, the parties who are requesting help do not take no for an answer, and in both stories, the Lord and Jephthah ultimately agree to help, and they do help. Now, this is the overarching structure or the rhetorical device that the author uses to compare God with Jephthah, if we want to use biblical theology and take it a step deeper and add Jesus Christ to the equation, that fits nicely as well. For you remember that Jesus, like Jephthah, was despised and rejected. And he came to his own and his own received him not. John chapter 1 verse 11. And even his own brothers did not believe in him. And yet Jesus helps in that he dies for those who turned him away. And he rises from the dead, and thus he is verified, and he is ultimately verified in that he ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high as king of the universe. The stone that the builders rejected, Mark chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And so do you see the rhetorical comparison between God and Jephthah? He is now verified as their leader. Point number one, Jephthah is verified, which brings us to point number two, and that is his voice, his voice. What follows in this narrative is a very unusual dialogue through messengers. When we get to point number three and we see the victory of Jephthah, it is one or two verses. But prior to the battle itself, there is a lengthy dialogue, his voice. And and what's happening is Jephthah is sending messengers to the king of the Ammonites, and the king of the Ammonites is sending a messenger to, to Jephthah, and they are having a dialogue back and forth. And here's how it goes. It is an attempt on the part of Jephthah for diplomacy and for negotiations so that he does not have to go to war. And what makes this negotiation so unusual is that Jephthah displays 
an unbelievable, accurate knowledge of biblical history. And the reason that that is odd is because this man is an illegitimate child, and he is driven away from his family, and he hangs out with thugs in Tob after he's kicked out by his family. He probably would have had a very difficult and a rough upbringing, yet he thoroughly understands the books of Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. And here's what he says to the king of the Ammonites. What are you and your army doing in our land? The king of the Ammonites fires back and says, No, 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 it's not your land. Israel stole our land on their way to the land of Canaan. And this goes all the way back to the book of Exodus when Moses leads the children of Israel out and they are making their way from Egypt to the land of Canaan and they have to pass through this region where the Ammonites are. If you'll see on the slide here for the map, uh, what the king is asking for is this land between the Jabbok River and the Arnon River right in here. Here's where... Here's where um, uh, Jephthah lives. And so the king of the Ammonites is asking for this property. In fact, he isn't even asking for it. He's moving his army into it in order to take it. And Gideon, I'm sorry, not Gideon, but Jephthah fires back and he says, no, you, you're wrong. You, you, have your, you have your facts all wrong. Um, Israel wanted to pass through your region by the Edomites and they wanted to do it peacefully But the king of Edom said no. And so we circumvented and we went around. And the same thing happened with the king of Moab. And the same thing happened with Sihon, the king of the Amorites, not the Ammonites, but the Amorites. But with him, he tried to fight us and he was very unsuccessful And because he fought us, we took his land. Numbers chapter 21, verses 21 through 26. And here's the key. Yes, we took it, but we took it because God gave it to us. Pay careful attention to verses 23 through 28 of chapter 11. 23 through 28. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites, that's Sihon. So remember, we are dealing today with the Ammonites, but this is history, and it's going back and talking now, recounting what happened with the Amorites. Amorites dispossessed the Amorites from before the people of Israel. And you, and are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Shemash, your God, gives you to possess, and all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us? We will possess. In other words, here we go. Whatever your God gives you, go ahead, take it. It's fine. He's being really sarcastic here. And whatever our God has given to us, well, we're going to stay because God has given to us. Now, verse 25. Uh, Are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or or did he ever go to war with them? 
While Israel lived in Heshbon in its villages and a rower, and that's what you need when you're in a boat, you need a rower, uh, and its villages and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Here we go. That's his, that's his logic. That's his history. That, that's his geography. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. I, I, I hope, you were, hope you were following that. Did you notice how Jephthah uses truth and geography and history and the Bible and logic in order to make his case? I love it. He says, we will possess what God, Yahweh, has given to us, and you go ahead and take whatever your God, small g, has given to you. He's saying to this king, you are not well-versed in history at all. And by the way, why are you bringing this up now after 300 years? Please, let's not fight. It is not your land. The king of the Ammonites could not be persuaded. He did not want to be confused by the facts. And so he said to Jephthah, let's fight. Now, I am extremely impressed with Jephthah. He is not looking for a fight. He sincerely attempts diplomacy. He has his facts biblically and historically lined up. He presents a logical reason as to why Israel should be in the land. God gave it to us 300 years ago. Have you ever noticed that some people do not want to deal with the facts at all? The facts are very inconvenient to them, and logic never plays into their argument. All they really want is what they want, and all they really want to do in order to get it is to fight. A pugnacious person who is prideful and ambitious. Nevertheless, we as Christians should do whatever we can to avoid a fight, to use negotiations, and to use diplomacy. We should have our facts lined up, and we should know what we believe and why we believe what we believe. Uh, Simply put, the truth is a very powerful weapon. A good working knowledge of the Bible and history and a practical use of logic will put you in a position of credibility, or as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The reason it says do it with gentleness and respect is because no one has ever been one to faith in Christ because another person has bulldozed them with inaccuracies. You see, our faith is a gift from God, yet at the same time, our faith is reasonable. Our faith is truth, and there is a reasonableness to our faith, and so we can use that reasonableness in speaking to people. Jephthah knew the truth, and he knew how to use the truth. Do you? That is his voice. And now comes the shortest of the five points, and that is point number three, his victory. The reason it's a short point, because 
There's very little ink used on the battle at all. In fact, there's much more ink on the negotiations prior to the battle than the battle itself. Notice what it says in chapter 11, verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. Battle over, Jephthah fights, Jephthah wins. And notice why he wins. It is because the Lord gave them into his hands. Uh, Up in chapter 11, verse 27, which we previously read, remember that Jephthah said to the king, the Lord, the judge, will decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. This, I think, is why he is included in the hall of faith, because he really trusts that God is going to do the right thing. He says to the king, all right, we're going to have a fight, and the Lord's going to decide who's going to win. And verse 32 tells us that the Lord was with Jephthah, and they indeed did win. How was this brought about? Well, in chapter 11, verse 29, it is through the Spirit of the Lord. It says that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And please remember that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was temporary. It was to equip a leader for a specific task. Uh, We have already seen it in the book of Judges in Othniel. We're looking at it now, and then we're going to see it when we look at Samson in chapters 13 through 16. But here is God upon Jephthah through his spirit, giving him a victory. Now you would look at this and say, why is this even a point of your sermon? I mean, it seems so simple. It seems so obvious. This point, victory, it doesn't really need its own point. And I would say it absolutely needs its own point because of what follows. Spoiler alert. Jephthah is going to make a foolish vow. I think most of you know that. But for those of you that don't, I'm telling you, he's going to do something very foolish prior to this battle. But the victory in the battle has nothing to do with Jephthah making the vow. What we are looking at here, clearly, is God giving him the victory. And the vow, which is in the next point, and I don't want to blur the points now, but I'm leaving it in this point now, is to tell you that that the vow is not only superfluous, but it is a sign of unbelief and spiritual immaturity. But for now, just know, quite simply, Jephthah fights, Jephthah wins, because God is with him. Which now brings us to point number four, and that is his vow This is the thing that Jephthah is known for the most. Chapter 11, verses 30 and 31. Battle doesn't take place until verse 32, so this is prior to the battle. And notice what he does, which is so foolish, verses 30 and 31. And Jephthah made a vow, a solemn promise, and an oath, if you will. He made a vow to the Lord and said, if... There's going to be a condition here, Lord. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, well, then here's what I'm going to do for you. Then, verse 31, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and here's what I'm going to do, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Let's make a deal. 
let's negotiate, God. You give me a win, I'll kill the first thing that comes out of my house to greet me. You give me a victory, and I will sacrifice whoever comes out of my house when I return. Now, some would argue that he thought it would be an animal, which is absolutely ridiculous because an animal would not be in the house. Some argued that he was hoping that it would be his mother-in-law that would walk out. I don't know. I don't, I, I, I shouldn't have, I shouldn't have even said that. No. <clears throat> he undoubtedly thought that it would be one of his servants. Notice what happens in verses 34 through 36. Then Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, and behold, paint a picture in your mind's eye. His daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. He's, he's re-emphasizing that. Verse 35, as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord. I made a vow, and I, I cannot take back my vow. Verse 36, and she, his daughter, his only daughter, his only offspring, said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the Ammonites. That's a, that's a really good attitude. She is willingly offering herself up there. Perhaps there is some Christological overtones there. She asks her father for two months so that she can go off and mourn with her friends. The reason she wants to mourn is because she will never get married and she will never have children. Now, some commentators say that Jephthah did not go through with it. They say that the sacrifice which was made was her forfeiting a life of marriage and that she remained celibate for the rest of her life, never had a husband, never had children. I would love to believe that that is true, but sadly... I think Jephthah committed manslaughter. Uh, chapter 11, verse 30 says this. Very, 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 very sad. It says, at the end of two months, I'm sorry, verse 39, at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. He did what he said he was going to do, so indeed I think he did kill her. I think he did. I really hope I'm wrong. Uh, sometimes I um, will sort of tongue-in-cheek say, I, I hope I'm wrong. Here's a case where I really sincerely hope that I'm wrong, but I think he did. Which begs the question, should he have followed through to keep his vow and to sacrifice his daughter? And my answer is, absolutely not. He should not have done it. I hope he didn't do it, but if he did do it, he shouldn't have done it. And I'm going to explain why in a minute, but let's back up even further. There was no reason whatsoever to make a vow in the first place because God was going to give him the victory. Back in point number three, the victory. God was going to give him that victory. That victory came from the Lord. 
And next, here's the thing. If you make a vow and you shouldn't, you should not. But if you do, do not make one which is reckless or rash or dangerous or sinful or unnecessary. A few years ago, I was talking to my daughter, Savannah, on the phone, and I said, Savannah, you will never guess who walked into my office today. I gave her no clues, no nothing. And I said, if you can guess who it was, I will give you $1,000. And she said, out of nowhere, with no clue, she said, was it the man who spoke at that funeral? Like, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I've got two options now. Number one, I can lie, or I can, I can give her $1,000. And there were two men that spoke at the funeral. And I said, which one? And she picked the wrong one. I said, no, I knew you wouldn't get it. There was no reason to offer her $1,000 for a guess. Do not promise God that you are going to shed innocent blood. Jephthah committed a double sin, first of all by making the vow and then by keeping the vow. You remember that King Saul made a rash vow. He said that if anybody eats before we are victorious in battle, that person dies which is idiotic because eating would strengthen the soldiers. But Saul being Saul says, if anybody eats, they're going to die. Jonathan, his son, unknowingly eats some honey. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 27. Saul finds out about it and he wants to kill his son. Saul is willing to cut off his nose to spite his face. But in 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 45, the people talk him out of it. It says, so the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And Saul, wicked Saul, dropped it as he well should have dropped it. You see, generally speaking, you should keep your promises. And you should not swear an oath or make a vow to God. You should say yes and then keep your word. Or you should say no and keep your word. Your word should mean something. Now, now, please understand, I'm not talking out of both sides of my mouth right now. There's a sense in which the mindset of Jephthah and his daughter are to be commended because they took a promise of God seriously, which the pendulum has swung to the other end in the 21st century, where a person's word means essentially nothing at all. So they are to be commended for that, but they are not right overall in what he said or what they did. James chapter 5, verse 12 says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you will not fall under condemnation. Jesus says the same thing, and he says that if you're doing anything more than a yes or a no, that's from the wicked one. In other words, you don't need to attach a deal or a promise, and I swear by the moon and the stars in the skies, I'll be there. I swear, all for one, 1994. You do not need to swear in order to get your point across. Just say yes or no, and then keep your word even if it hurts you. 
Psalm chapter 15, verse 4, speaks of the blessed one. Who is the blessed one? The blessed one is the one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. You agree to help someone move their furniture, and at the last minute, someone offers you tickets to see the Mets or the Yankees. You keep your word. You miss the baseball game, and you move the furniture. Your word has to mean something. You are a member of North Shore Baptist Church. You have made an agreement to come together with the people of God unless providentially hindered for the Lord's Supper. We are doing that tonight. You should be here tonight, if not providentially hindered. Several years ago, 22 years ago, one of the ladies in our church passed away. 23 years ago, she died. 22 years ago, Her brother was selling her house. She had no children. Her brother was selling her house. One of the members of our church went to her brother and said, I'd like to buy the house from you. I know it is worth a lot more than this, but I can offer you $140,000. The man said, well, you knew my sister. You were good to my sister. I'll sell you the house for $140,000. Later that evening... One of the neighbors came by her brother and offered him over $60,000 more than the man from our church had agreed to pay. And this man, who I do not believe was a Christian, but he said to the neighbor, I'm sorry, I already agreed that I would sell it to someone for $140,000. Well, did they sign? No, they didn't sign. They didn't have to sign. I gave my word, and that was good enough. However, when you have given your word or made a vow or an oath or a promise, and that which you are promising is sin, that then is not binding. You go to a young lady who is living with her boyfriend And you say, you're you're fornicating. No fornicator will inherit the kingdom of heaven. You have to move out. And her response is, I promised him. I made a promise that I would never leave him. Not only is it acceptable for you to leave, but it is necessary that you leave. You must. You see, there are no circumstances under which we should continue to sin in order to keep a promise. So, in the first place... Don't make a vow to begin with. But if you do, keep it unless it is sinful. Back to Jephthah. Why did he do it in the first place? This is the heart of understanding Jephthah's problem and our problem. The reason he did it in the first place is because of pride. It is the pride that I feel when I go to Six Flags. And I get on a roller coaster, particularly one that is slow moving up to the top. And as it is moving to the top, I am making deals with God. (laughs) I am saying, I promise I will never sin again. Just get me off of this roller coaster alive. And then I break both of those promises within 30 minutes when I get on another roller coaster. But what is it that causes me to go into negotiations with God? It is pride. We make deals with God because we have a high view of ourselves. That is pride. And we have a low view of God. We actually believe 
that we possess something that he wants. Last night, I was at the San Gennaro Feast in Little Italy, and there are games of skill and games of chance, and if you win, you can take home a stuffed animal. Let me be honest with you. I believe that the coronavirus was not developed in a laboratory in China. I believed it was developed in a stuffed animal hanging on a trailer at the San Gennaro Feast. If all of those stuffed animals were free, I would not want any of them. They do not have anything that I want, much less that I would pay my money and be embarrassed at a game that I could not win in order to take home that stuffed animal. I don't want them. I'm not going to take a chance to win. When we go to God and say, I promise I will do this or that, or I will never do this or that again, if you will just forgive me, or if you will just heal me, or if you will just get me out of this jam. How many times have you got caught doing something and you know that you got caught doing something and as you are being confronted or just prior to being confronted, you start to make a deal with God and say, God, if you will just get me out of this this one time, I will never do that again. That is pride. We don't have anything that he wants. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They are stuffed animals, filthy stuffed animals hanging on a trailer at a feast in lower Manhattan. Why would Jephthah think that God would want the blood of his daughter or her perpetual virginity if you want to take that as the sacrifice? You see, here's the thing. We are not, by nature, gospel-centered people. We are works-centered people, and God hates that. The gospel says that God is holy and that he demands perfection. You don't have it. That is the only thing he will accept. None of us have it, for all have sinned. The gospel says you do not have anything that he wants. Guilty, vile, helpless, we. We are sinners, The gospel says that God loves you, here we go, because he loves you, period. That's it. The gospel says that he does not work salvation for you, but by you giving him something. Salvation is worked by him, completely by him, sacrificing his son on the cross, Jesus, to die for our sins and be raised on the third day for our justification, period. We add nothing. If there was any way that God could have saved you without sacrificing his son, he would have done that. The gospel is of first importance because it is the one and only way we can be right with God. The gospel is all of God and none of you. And by making vows or oaths or promises to God, first of all, you are insulting his grace. You are saying that what Christ did was not enough, and I will add my promise in order to sweeten the deal. And you're also, let's be honest, not going to be able to keep your vow. It might not have been on a roller coaster, but, 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 but somewhere. Did you ever make one of those promises to God? Did you ever keep it? So now you have compounded your sin because 
Not only should you not have made the vow, but you are a liar in that you have not kept the promise. Instead of simply saying, Lord, I need your help. I need your mercy. I acknowledge that you are merciful. I acknowledge that when you look at your people, there is pity in your heart and you do not like to see us afflicted because you love us so much. Lord, I don't appeal to me. I appeal to your love and I offer you nothing but the finished work of Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and my ability to keep the promises that I made to you. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name and the things that I said I would never do again. Back to point number one. Do you remember why God finally decided to help Israel? It was because of his heart of mercy. Friends, I urge you to cultivate a heart of the gospel, which sees God as kind and merciful, and love him for who he is. Love him because he first loved you. Do not try to offer him a deal. We think that we're being holy and we're being humble by making God an offer. We, we think that we're being holy and we're being humble when we don't accept his forgiveness and we think that we have to work for it. We're actually being prideful and pagan. I mean, in actuality, what is the difference between Roman Catholic penance, which is a doctrine from hell, but what is the difference between Roman Catholic penance and a Baptist promising God, I'll do this or that for you if you will just do this or that for me. Nothing. It's the same thing. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a mindset in a gospel of works. So we've seen his verification, his voice, his victory, his vow, and now point number five, his vindictiveness. He's going to get even. Chapter 12, we have what in my warped mind is a very amusing story, even though a lot of people die. It, it, it is an amusing story. Um, do you remember Gideon? The story of Gideon where he is chasing the two kings of the Midianites, and he's stopped by the Ephraimites who complain to him and say, why were we not called to battle? Why were we not included? And remember the, the heart of Gideon in it? He says, you're right, I should have. You guys are, you guys are better than us. You, you, you should have been included. And, and there's, there's peace within Israel because Gideon can be insulted and then just turn the other cheek and walk away. Well, in Judges chapter 12, we have this same group. We have the Ephraimites, and they complain for the same reason. Only this time, they picked the wrong judge. Jephthah is not sympathetic to their criticism, and instead of babying the Ephraimites, as Gideon did, he starts a civil war. And his Gileadite army uh, from Manasseh beats them decisively. But some of these Ephraimites escape. And as they are trying to get home, uh, if we can have the map again real quick, 
As they are trying to get home, they're going to have to cross the Jordan River. So here's the region of the Ephraimites. Here's where the battle takes place. The Ephraimites come over. They give Jephthah a piece of their mind. Now there's a battle, and these guys just want to get home. In order to get home, they have to cross the Jordan River. At the fords, or the places where it would be easiest to cross, the Ephraimites know that the Gileadites are angry with them. And they know that if they are identified as Ephraimites, they're going to be killed. And so what they decide to do as they are crossing the Jordan River is they are going to lie about who they are. They're going to say that they're from any tribe except from Ephraim. The Gileadites say, are you an Ephraimite? And they would all say no. So Jephthah tells his soldiers, here's one way that you can detect whether or not they are telling the truth. If they cannot pronounce their H's, we know that they are not Gileadites. We know that they are Ephraimites. Their accent is going to betray them. And if they can't say the word correctly, then you can go ahead and kill them. Uh, Look in chapter 12, verses 5 through 7. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when they said no, they said to him, then say, Shibboleth. And he would say, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, look at this number, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. So get the picture. You have this guy walking over. He thinks he's in the clear, and he's presenting his passport, his fake passport. He's trying to get across the River Jordan. And we have a simple question for you. Are you an Ephraimite? No. Then say Shibboleth. Shibboleth. (laughs) He's dead. What if some guy actually is not an Ephraimite, but he has a speech impediment (laughs) and he dies? Accents are amazing. You remember that's how they knew that Simon Peter at the trial of Christ was a Galilean because his accent betrayed him. I love listening to accents and guessing where people are from. About eight years ago, I met a young lady who, when you close your eyes, you thought you were listening to Emily Allen, like it was the identical voice. And I said to her, I'm going to guess you're from Ohio. She goes, I am from Ohio. I said, I'm going to guess you're from Western Ohio. She says, I am from Western Ohio. I said, I'm going to guess you live north of Cincinnati. I do live north of Cincinnati. How did I know? Her accent gave her away. I'm very sad that the New York accent has died. Do you know that there are currently no children or youth in our church who have a New York accent? That's sad, but that is not the point of Judges 12. The point of Judges 12 is this. Jephthah killed 42,000, count them, 42,000 of his own people because they insulted him. He was vindictive. 
that war was unnecessary. Gideon turned the other cheek, and he wrote Ephraim a pass. Jephthah went for blood. You see, Jesus Christ, by his gospel example of going to the cross silently, teaches us that vindictiveness is wrong. And Jesus Christ tells us with his words on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 39, that we are to turn the other cheek. Please listen in closing as to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 12. The doctrine of vindictiveness is a very wicked doctrine in light of gospel love and gospel truth. Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's Jephthah. What are our takeaways today? I have three of them. Number one, don't make a deal with God. Simply rest in his mercy. Remember earlier when I told you that the heart of the message is that God looked at the misery of his people and his heart was moved? Everything good that we get is not based upon who we are. Everything that we get, which is good, is in the heart of God. I hope you see him that way. I, I hope you feel him that way. I hope you experience his love, for God is love, and God loves you in Christ. You do not understand the depths of God's love. Do you feel God's love? Do you view him as one who, when he sees you afflicted, feels afflicted himself? Or do you see him getting some sort of enjoyment over chastening us? No, you need to feel the love of God and don't make any deals with him. Just rest in his love. Well, how do I know he loves me? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Is there anything more you would like God to do in order to demonstrate his love? He loves you. Feel and experience that love. Don't be making any deals with him. Number two, Know your history and know your Bible. Not only are you going to appear to be smarter, but you are going to be wiser. Know your history, know your Bible. Know how to use history and use your Bible to logically communicate. Negotiate. Use diplomacy. Do not fight. Have the facts and use the facts. And number three, when you are insulted, and you will be insulted today, Look to Christ who did not retaliate. Do not look to Jephthah who killed 42,000 of his fellow countrymen. Father in heaven, we look at this man, Jephthah, and we in so many ways see ourselves. Lord, we look at Jesus and we say, oh, he was so much better and so different. I pray, dear God, that you would help us to love Jesus 
and to embrace Jesus and to follow Jesus, Lord, I pray that we would be so much less like ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.